I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and my guest today is Scott Pearson, who just wrapped up eight and a half years as executive director of the District of Columbia Public Charter School Board. You can find a blog post by Scott offering up key lessons on charter school policy and politics he learned in that role on the journal's website at educationnext.org. And I'm very glad to have the chance to ask him about those lessons today. Scott, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Thank you, Marty. Happy to be here. For those listeners who aren't familiar, what is the DC Public Charter School Board? What role does it play in the city's schools? The DC Public Charter School Board is the sole charter school authorizer in Washington, DC. Um, so we're the organization who decides which applicants to open charter schools get approved so that they get public funding to run public schools. Um, we oversee the schools and make sure that um, they're following the law. And we, from time to time, have to make the difficult decision to close a school when it underperforms. Um, the DC Public Charter School Board is an independent arm of the DC government. So we are part of the DC government, but um, I reported to a seven member board appointed by the mayor um, for, for four years staggered terms. So we had a considerable amount of independence um, and, and were able to, I think, do a, a good job of um, ensuring that the charter sector in DC was well managed. Um, just by way of context, uh, there are about 90,000 students who go to public school in the District of Columbia. A little under 50,000 of those go to DC public schools and about 43,000 go to um, public charter schools. There are 124 public charter schools that are run by 62 different nonprofit organizations. So it's a very thriving, robust sector um, that's attracted a lot of kids. Now, of course, one of the perennial debates in the charter community is over whether it makes sense to have a sole authorizer, as in DC, or multiple authorizers. From your perch at the DC Public Charter School Board, what did you see as the advantages of being the sole actor in the space? Well, I think the advantages were that we were able to look at the entire sector in DC um, and think about that as a portfolio. Um, we were able to execute policies that um, we knew would have effect across the entire charter sector and didn't have to worry about um, other schools that weren't necessarily complying. Um, we, um, we were a single point of contact. If, if a member of the mayor wanted to talk to somebody who had oversight over all of the schools, she knew who to call. Um, and um, it generally, I think, led to a more coherent um, approach. The, you know, the reason that you want multiple authorizers is, you know, if you have a bad authorizer, one who's hostile or one who makes arbitrary decisions, you want schools to have somewhere else to go. The way we dealt with that in D.C. was there was a right of appeal. So schools could appeal decisions um, to the courts. Um, and in some cases, they could appeal decisions to the state superintendent. And so that was how we, we address that, that issue. But I, I think it brought a lot of coherence and consistency. And it allowed us also to work with our partners across the city, the chancellor of DC public schools, the deputy mayor of education, um, uh, and really represent the entire charter sector on big citywide policy initiatives. I guess there's a big difference between having the sole authorizer be 
the school district with which charters are potentially competing and being a distinct body like you all were in DC. Tell us a bit about your own path to becoming the board's executive director. I didn't begin my career in education. I, I um, was in business for about 20 years. Um, and, and then about 20 years ago, uh, a good friend of mine asked me to help him uh, develop and conceive the idea of a charter management organization uh, in California called Leadership Public Schools. And I served as the board chair of that organization for eight years. And that really infused me with a passion for the power of public charter schools uh, to make a difference in kids' lives, as well as to really have an impact on public education more broadly. Um, in the course of that, I met a lot of folks around the country. And when President Obama was elected, uh, I moved back to Washington, D.C. Uh, to join the Arnie Duncan Department of Education, where I oversaw uh, the federal charter schools program, as well as many other things uh, there. And that perch really gave me the perspective of what was going on around the country, the tremendous variety of experiences of public charter schools all, all around the country. And I, and I became convinced that good authorizing was uh, a key to improving charter schools um, in almost any setting. And with that perspective, um, when the, the, I was approached uh, to lead the DC Public Charter School Board, I really saw the opportunity to sort of put my money where my mouth was um, and really try to lead an authorizer in the way that I thought uh, could be a model for the rest of the country. So let's turn to the lessons you draw from your experience in that role. Number one is remove the valid reasons people hate charter schools. That sounds like common sense, but presumably it's hard to get done. What are the valid reasons people hate charters and what did you all do about them in DC? When I, what I saw from my um, position at the Department of Education was that um, there was a, just a tremendous range of behaviors by charter schools around the country and that um, many of them were failing to fulfill what I see as the basic core um, foundational principle of charter schools, which is that they be open to all students. So we focused on five key things to, to make sure that our schools were living up to their promise of charter schools. The first was open admissions. We saw, uh, what I saw at the Department of Education was that schools around the country put up formal and informal barriers to students getting in, um, whether they ask students to write essays or whether they require parents to show up at a certain time and date um, to, to apply. Um, we combed through all of our school's admission policies and made sure that none of those things were present and then ultimately worked with DC public schools to create a common lottery uh, to make that process even easier. We also created a mystery shopper program where we called um, schools posing as parents and guardians of students with disabilities and asked, you know, how would I go about applying to your school? How would I get in um, and uh, uh, tracked the kind of answers schools gave? We told schools we were going to do this because the point was not to catch them in some sort of gotcha moment, but to ensure that they were giving compliant, open enrollment answers to everybody. So that was the first thing. The second was quality. You know, charter schools are supposed to be better than the traditional public schools. And um, what I saw in DC was that we had schools when I, when I arrived that ranged the gamut from really, really great 
to really, really terrible. Um, and we went about um, a laborious process of closing low performing schools. So now if you look at the range of charter schools in DC, the worst are average and the best are still really, really great. And, and as a result, if you look at our NAEP scores, for example, we're the fastest improving uh, sector in the country over the last 10 years. Third had to do with school discipline, um, uh, that discipline rates were very high. Um, when I arrived, charter schools were expelling close to 2% of their population uh, every year. Um, <clears throat> we didn't want to mandate um, discipline rules, but we did want schools to be thoughtful about their discipline processes. So we, we used a lot of data and communicated extensively with schools and school boards about their data and showed school showed which schools were outliers. We published that data. And in the process, we lowered expulsion rates by over 80% and suspension rates we cut in half. Um, the fourth area was special populations. Um, schools have to serve um, students with disabilities and English learners. And we really um, oversaw that aggressively and made sure that every school was indeed doing that. And then the last was financial. You know, you, you look at Diane Ravitch's blog, it's filled with uh, examples of charter leaders enriching themselves. And we really wanted to make sure that none of that was happening in DC. So we stepped our, up our financial oversight um, and in the process ended up closing two large schools where in fact, there was evidence that the school leadership was being enriched by the school. Um, so those were, those were the main things that we did to, to try to remove uh, what I saw as the valid reasons that people um, didn't support charter schools. Lesson two, you say, is to remove the existential angst. And you're referring here to questions about whether the end game for the charter sector is in fact to replace the traditional district with which it's competing for students. This is a topic that you've written about for Education Next in the past, debating Nirav Kingsland, who talked about the New Orleans model of truly replacing a district with a system of charters, you argue that the balance that you struck in, in Washington, D.C. makes more sense. So I wonder if you could quickly recap your argument for why that's the right goal, and then how do you make it clear to the district, to the observers in the city, that that is, in fact, what you have in mind? Well, context matters, and, and um, what I felt and argued and continue to argue is that in Washington, D.C., um, the right answer is for there to be a balance between D.C. public schools and public charter schools. And that is the case in D.C. because we have a system that has undertaken a, a public, a traditional public school system that has undertaken real reforms that is improving um, and that is in as much as a public charter school um, system, really a poster child for how education reform should work. Um, and so um, in that context, it didn't make sense to say, well, that's not good enough. It needs to be all public charter schools. I did think that there were several reasons um, that range from uh, kind of real politic to more practical reasons that um, charter schools, at least in DC, shouldn't seek to completely overtake and remove traditional public schools. One is that 
having a traditional public school that is your default school to go to, in my opinion, enhances school choice. There's a lot of anxiety to school choice when parents play the lottery um, because they don't know where they're going to end up going. And in D.C., they could end up getting in somewhere across the city. And um, and knowing that you have a, uh, a neighborhood school of right, um, I, I think actually enhances the choice set. Um, so that that's one. The second is, you know, in the politics in D.C., there is a lot of support for D.C. public schools. And. Um, I was saying to Jed Wallace, who, who runs Charter Folk, because uh, he was debating me on this just yesterday, um, there, there's not a single city council member that I can think of. There's not a single mayor of the mayors that I've known and worked with who would support um, the elimination of D.C. public schools. In fact, we currently have a, uh, an election for an at-large city council member. There are 23 people running for that seat. There's not a single one of those 23 people who would support eliminating DCPS. So the politics in this city are that if that's where you're coming in, um, you're going to have a lot of people who would normally be on your side not support you. And, and that's just not a good place to be. And so every time you approve a new school, people are seeing it as another step toward the elimination of DCPS, um, which makes the politics very, very difficult. And then the third reason is that. You know, there is, I have seen, a very strong democratic impulse to, to interfere, to meddle, to direct what happens in public education. People see, you know, the school system uh, not having enough librarians or not having enough recess or not having enough AP classes. And, you know, when you're running for city council or you're running for mayor, you want to be able to tell people that you're going to do something about that. And that is antithetical to the idea of charter schools, which are supposed to have exclusive control, supposed to have autonomy. You're supposed to let the school leader make these decisions. But that democratic impulse has to find an expression somewhere. And if there's not a traditional public school for them to work their will, work their will with, then they're going to do it with public charter schools. And, and to me, it was, um, it was a fair bargain to keep DC public schools, which was improving, which was reforming, which had really strong leadership um, around and strong um, in a healthy, competitive, cooperative um, environment, rather than envision a world that frankly, no politician in DC supports, where we might at some point be 100% but then we would be at the, at the mercy of the city council and the mayor for every, every whim that someone had about how they thought schools should operate better. And how successful were you all at convincing the politicians in DC that that was in fact your goal? I, I think we were um, because they saw the results. So in 2015, uh, my then board chair, Skip McCoy and I, published an op-ed in the Washington Post where we said that the rough balance between DCPS and public charters in Washington was about right. Um, and, and if you looked at the charter market share, which had been climbing two to three percentage points a year, it basically stopped climbing. Um, now, our enrollment went up because 
the city population was growing. And I think that the quality schools had something to do with that. We had more and more people choosing public schools, both DCPS and charters, and we found that both of our enrollments were climbing. Um, but you know, we aggressively closed low-performing schools, uh, and we were very selective about which schools we allowed to open and to grow. And so we grew, but we grew responsibly. DCPS grew as well, and the whole city thrived as a result. The third lesson you draw is that the ecosystem is important. So talking here not about schools themselves, but the variety of organizations with which schools interact that surround them. Why is that broader ecosystem important? And what does an authorizer have to do with that ecosystem? What role can it play? Well, one of the things that I was most pleasantly surprised with when I started working in Washington, D.C. at the Public Charter School Board was just how robust and thriving that ecosystem was here to support schools. What I argue in my blog post is that, you know, charter schools have a lot of advantages of their being small, being nimble, but that often deprives them of things that a organization with more scale might have, such as a reading intervention program or a college prep program. Or, um, and what, what we have in DC is we have literally dozens of outside organizations philanthropically funded uh, that provide those supports to schools. So, I mean, there are at least a half a dozen uh, college access programs. There are, um, I could think of four uh, reading intervention programs. We have a nonprofit that was started here who focuses on how charter school governing boards can be more effectively managed. Um, we have back office providers. We have innumerable providers of related services for special education. We have a special ed co-op. It goes on and on. Um, but what I found was, was that ecosystem was really essential to the success of, of the schools here because they, they didn't have to do it all themselves. Um, what an authorizer has to do with it is, is a good question. Um, what I tried to do was use my position to try to strengthen those organizations. So from, uh, from time to time, philanthropists would ask to meet with me and ask for my suggestions about how they should spend money. Um, and I always pointed them to the importance of the ecosystem. Um, the, the city itself receives some federal money um, that they grant out to charter schools. And I argued strongly that a portion of that money should be granted to nonprofits who support public charter schools. Um, so it, was, it wasn't a direct kind of um, authority, but it was using my position to try to promote those organizations because um, in, in my observation, they were so important. Your fourth lesson is that context matters. You've already given us a couple of examples of how the political context locally in DC influenced your approach to charter growth in the city. What else do you have in mind when it comes to the local context? Um, the, the, the local context in DC was one where it did not support um, the sectors bashing each other. Uh, you know, when I look at other cities and like whether it's Los Angeles or Chicago, I mean, it is, it is trench warfare going on um, there. 
And in DC, because of the fact that <clears throat> there was a, a broad consensus among the education and political leadership around core education reform principles, whether they be um, a, a accountability, whether they be you know um, flexibility over the labor markets, whether they be supportive of school choice, um, high levels of funding, funding following the student, um, uh, there was broad consensus there. And so um, while certainly there were many areas where we disagreed, um, whether it was on specific funding decisions or specific questions about the disposition of buildings um, or, uh, you know, certain, um, certain policies that we thought were overly restrictive, um, the broad approach was one of collaboration. And what we, what I found was that, um, you know, people who I met, citizens, parents, students, um, tended to be not particularly uh, aware or caring whether their school was a charter school or a DCPS school. There were some who did, but um, we saw lots of people um, moving between them. They'd go to a DCPS school for elementary school, and then they'd choose a charter school. And we saw that not only with um, parents and students, we saw with teachers and teacher leaders. Uh, Michelle Kim um, was the leader of um, one of DC's most high, DCPS's most highly regarded middle schools. She then became the chief academic officer at KIPP DC. And now she is the deputy chancellor um, at DC public schools. So move back and forth. And, and I can think of many examples of that. So um, while I don't want to minimize the fact that we were competing and that we often didn't have completely aligned policy objectives, um, that was overshadowed by the fact that we were all supportive of a broad education reform movement. And, and, um, and so um, I was specifically responding to some things that Jed Wallace has been arguing in his Charter Folk blog, you know, about um, how to approach politics around the country. And, and I think in many uh, respects, he's largely right. Um, but I do think that you need to consider the individual context of each city. And in DC, the context is one where we really are to the maximum extent possible trying to work together. And your final lesson is that crossing the chasm isn't enough. You're referring here to the conventional wisdom that the politics surrounding charters are very easy when they're a very small phenomenon in a city uh, and no one pays them any mind, but then they get very difficult when they start to expand and become an important part of the local education market. And it's only once they become very large, as in DC, that they're well-established enough to push back politically. Your contention here is that achieving that scale isn't enough. Uh, why not? And what do we do about it? If there's any city in the country that you could argue has crossed the chasm to a place where we should have uh, enough political support and constituent support um, to protect us from those who um, oppose charter schools, it would be DC. We're at 47%. And significantly, um, we not only educate 47% of the children in DC, we educate 
I would argue about half of the children of the uh, political and civic leadership in DC. Um, I, I say in my blog post, it's difficult to walk through the Wilson building, which is our, what we call our city hall, and not bump into dozens of people who have children at our schools. And that ranges from the, the security guard who checks your bag when you walk into the door to the agency director in the corner office. Um, so we have, we have crossed the chasm um, and it has arguably protected us from the most extreme type of um, anti-charter sentiment, which is let's do away with it. Nobody would ever consider that. And, and it has also probably protected us from uh, efforts to defund us. So there is now a pretty well-established um, practice of funding charters and DC public schools uh, equally with the exception of contribution to the DCPS pension fund and some of their facilities costs. But what I found was that that 47% uh, did not protect us from the innumerable attacks on our autonomy um, that were levied by uh, city council members who felt that they uh, had a better idea of how to run a school than our school leaders did. Um, and I saw it two years ago when there was a major piece of legislation that regulated school discipline. And I saw it um, this year when there was a major piece of legislation that um, subjected our, um, our school boards to uh, the Open Meetings Act. Um, and what I found was that, you know, yes, we have 47%, but can you find a single parent teacher um, who is willing to go down and testify before the city council and say that the city council shouldn't regulate school discipline? Or uh, there's a proposal now that would regulate uh, some of the teaching of history in our schools. H how many of our parents are understand the principles of charter schools and the principle of autonomy that undergirds our basic successes so that they're willing to go down and, and testify that schools should be allowed to develop their own history curriculum as opposed to using something that's mandated by the city. Um, what I found was, was that, you know, unless you're talking about cutting school money or closing a school, um, that uh, your market share does not produce real political power um, because people haven't been educated. They don't, they don't understand or care about the connection between the whittling away, the chipping away of charter school autonomies um, and the fact that that's going to make those schools less successful in the future. And it also applies to school growth. Um, there are beginning to be rumblings about um, so from some council members saying, you know, we should regulate the ability of charter schools to grow. There should be more of a check on it than just the decision of the DC Public Charter School Board. You know, if you're a parent um, at or even a school leader at an existing school that is content and not seeking future growth, um, does that really matter to you? Uh, maybe not. And so it's, it's hard to mobilize the, I guess, the nascent political power that you would think you would have 
with almost half of the students in the, in the city um, to, to counter um, a whole range of legislative initiatives that could be very harmful to our schools. So it's ultimately a very sobering piece of advice because it suggests that the political battle to protect charter school autonomy is never ending, but also that it's very difficult to mobilize the charter community to engage in that battle. What's your advice for those who are seeking to solve that dilemma? Well, it is it is never ending. And sometimes in some of my more pessimistic moments, I think that, you know, we're just watching the recapitulation of the creation of the modern public school system, because, you know, with every year, there's a new legislator with a bright idea for some way to tell our schools how to run themselves better. And eventually, we're going to end up with the same three inch thick rule book that the traditional public schools have. Um, I think the the only answer is to um, to actually harness and mobilize the, the parents, the teachers, um, the community around the schools to care about these things. But to do that, we have to um, make sure that they feel vested in the schools and in the underpinnings of why those schools are successful. Um, and I, I do think that that means um, different behavior on the part of many of our school leaders. Um, many of them don't prioritize that. Some of them fear um, what the consequences of actually organizing and mobilizing their parents are, uh, because you can't just turn this on or off. You need to, if you're gonna, if you're gonna activate your parents and turn them into a mobilized group of people, you should expect that they're gonna now want um, some input into what goes on in your school. And that's, that's hard when you're a leader of a school of choice. But ultimately, I think that's the only way that we're going to um, actually harness the, the political force that we should have as a result of our market share. We need, to, we need to engage more with parents. We need to listen to them more. And we need, we need to make them feel more invested in the success and future of our school. My guest today has been Scott Pearson, former executive director of the DC Public Charter School Board and author of Five Things We Learned in DC about how to advance charter schools, a blog post that's available now at educationnext.org. Scott, thanks for being part of the podcast and congratulations on your work in DC. Thank you, Marty, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.